Previously on Beta. Willoughby, stop his Willoughby. You have nothing but spindly limbs and a dream, and the state has no use for your kind. You, you want to see something really scary? You bet. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, Chelsea Beaker tells us why she likes to include children in her stories. While they may be very young, they are seeing the world in a really heightened way. And I think that always makes for a compelling narrator. Also, writer John Mualam on his very entertaining and very enlightening essay collection, Serious Face. One guy said my face looked like something Dali would paint, like a smirking camembert melting in the sun, <laughs> which, uh, I, you know, I, I applaud his, uh, the literary flourish, at least. But first... We didn't let anyone give toasts. Because I feel like half of the toasts you're going to hear at any wedding are going to be terrible, right? <laughs> Often from men. Because <laughs> again, I don't think that's something a lot of straight guys, get, we give ourselves this emotional access to, to be tender with our friends. So it just comes out real aggressive. <laughs> Every groomsman speech I've ever witnessed may as well have been delivered by the groom's worst enemy on planet Earth. <laughs> That's comedian Josh Gondelman. He's the head writer for the popular late-night talk show, Jesus and Merrill. Josh has a reputation for being the nicest man in comedy, so it's only fitting that his debut comedy special is called People Pleaser. And although it's been said that you can't please all of the people all of the time, Josh proves that he can please all of the people all of the time. He delivers one great joke after another about various subjects, including the experience of making a cameo appearance in a friend's dream, and a poignant true story about how he discovered that his wife Maris was the person he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. And while many comedy specials record two or more sets, Josh only needed one set to nail it. Josh joined us from his home in Borum Hill. We wondered if there was ever a time when pleasing people backfired on him. I was just like such a goober when I was a young person. <laughs> like I really wanted to like be there for people and do things that are nice. And I think like I was so over the top until I maybe still, but definitely until my twenties <laughs> where like I, in high school, I would like carry around a can of chicken soup, like a progresso chicken soup. And then if somebody seemed like they weren't doing well, I'd be like, here, you got to have this can of chicken soup. That's what you need when you're not feeling well. And it's like, in retrospect, that's like a completely unreasonable thing to do. That's like not, I, I'm sure people were like, what the hell is this guy doing? Cause like there's no <laughs> place to make, there's no place to heat up chicken soup, no can openers. We went to like a pretty, you know, like there were hot lunch, but like bag lunch public school where it wasn't like there was a luxurious uh, student lounge where you could just get soup ready for eating. If you're like, Oh, I have a cold and someone gave me this can of soup. So I was really just giving them like a one pound weight to do resistance <laughs> training with as they walked through their day. And it's just like, I feel like that impulse has never fully left me, but I've like kind of worn away the, the parts of that, like, Oh, I should really like be accommodating to people that, that are like, completely ridiculous <laughs> i like to think at least <laughs> yeah yeah you have a lot of empathy because you also do on on twitter you all offer to give pep talks to people 
Yes, I I do. That's been going going for a long time now, and I I've been a little spottier with it because it's just there. I this is gonna sound like a bizarre complaint, but like I have so many followers now compared to when I started doing this like nine years ago. That when I'll say, you know, I'll wait till late at night and I'll go, hey, if anybody needs a pep talk, I'm here for five minutes. Just let me know. And I get so many requests, and I feel guilty not responding to all of them because I feel like people wouldn't reach out unless they we're feeling in need. So it ends up, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot the tweet out at like 11 PM and then I'll be up till 1230 responding to a hundred people that are like, I've got a job interview tomorrow and I'm really nervous. Or like my dad is sick and I'm having a hard time splitting time between my work and caring for my family. And it's like, wow, this is real stuff. Like people are being really real. And so I really try to like respond in kind of the way people reply to me because I don't want to be glib or I don't want to like leave people hanging when they're like, oh, I'm being vulnerable. And I'm like, sorry, I'm sleepy. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's great that you do that. That's Thank wonderful you. that you do that. Yeah. You, you've been doing stand-up a long time. What was the biggest challenge you faced when you were putting together People Pleaser, your first one-hour comedy special? Oh, that's such a good question. So the biggest challenge was I hadn't been performing live in over a year, really. And so it was going from only doing Zoom shows and the very occasional outdoor show to like working up my sea legs to being on stage at all to figuring out like what it looks like to do an hour with some material that I've never performed in person, some material that I had started writing a few years ago after my last album came out, right? And then figuring out what kind of bits that I had been doing for a, for a long time or had, had kind of put on the shelf that I was like, oh, I have this opportunity to show off some material I really love to people that maybe aren't, you know, as familiar with my stand-up. It just feels so good to be able to do that safely. Even the, the bad parts, even the stuff I didn't used to like, I now kind of have an affection for. I was out at a bar the other night and I saw a guy kind of drinking, like he was trying to get drunk enough to leave the YouTube comments in his heart. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, I don't know about that guy. And then I was like, wait a minute, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> I haven't seen a guy that I haven't known about in like a year and a half. <laughs> Just been in my apartment walking by my mirror like, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> so it was like putting that all together and making it feel cohesive after I, you know, a 15 month layoff from getting on stage. And it was like a real interesting challenge, but it's like, I really like, uh, I really like this uh, with this with the title of my special, this shouldn't be a surprise. I really like um, like homework, like assignments where I'm like, ooh, this, I, I I can do this and then I will have this thing ready to, to, to show off. So I really kind of relished the opportunity to like get it together, you know, figure out what I was gonna wear even, like get, like get everything ready for this recording where I was like, okay, I've got a, um, four weeks to ramp up and then I have this one night where I have to execute this performance and then and then I've done it. Yeah, and you did it very well. Thank how, you. Thank you for doing it so well. How, how do you balance writing comedy for your act with writing comedy for Jesus and Meryl? So I'm, I've been in writer's rooms full time for like the last almost eight years, I guess, at this point. Mm -hmm. And 
I've I really had to when I started working full time in comedy before I was even a staff writer at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I was very frustrated with the pace that I was writing stand up at, and I I was kind of beating myself up about it. But I had to like kind of let myself off the hook a tiny bit and go, look, this is the thing. Like I I'm doing it. Like when I go to the office during the day this is, I'm working in comedy. This is the dream. I'm living the dream. So I can't like get mad at myself for living too much dream. So Mm. all that is to say, I do a pretty fair amount of stand-up around New York City still, and I write when I can. But I, um, my writing process is a little slower than if I were full-time doing stand-up. And I, I try to like be mindful of that and do sets because I enjoy doing it and because it keeps me sharp as a performer and it keeps me engaged with the material that I'm performing. So I don't feel like, oh, I haven't even said this in six weeks. Here we are, we're in New York City in Tribeca, a neighborhood where I can't afford the coffee. (laughs) Even the name of this neighborhood sounds rich, Tribeca. It sounds like a couple of rich kids attempting to find someone to buy cocaine from. Just like, Tyler's out of town, Tribeca. Her parents work in pharmaceuticals. But also, like, going to an office every day, I'm I'm not traveling as much, you know, as I would if I were on the road. I'm like, my life is like, I have a pretty, like, wonderful and steady rhythm. So it also, I'm like, having fewer, especially in this, like, pandemic lingering pandemic world fewer like weird experiences to write about so I'm like really trying to dig in and mine like my thoughts and daily life for uh for material because I'm not like out having adventures (laughs) you know uh on a regular basis so it's and I do sometimes I see my friends like who are full-time comics and I see the way that they like generate material and work so hard at like turning over their hour of material every 12, 18 months. And I'm so impressed. And I'm like, oh, why aren't I doing that sometimes? I'm like, oh, because I do a different thing all day. <laughs> and that's my yeah, participation exactly. in comedy. So I, it's like really, I, I like want everything all the time. I'm like, I just, I'm like, oh, this all seems like so much fun. Why can't I do everything? And it's like, well, there's limited hours in the day. And uh, I just have to like, stop kicking my own butt so hard about like why aren't you yeah exactly that's good that's good that you realize that and you're you're not kicking your own butt so hard because you shouldn't be doing that at all yeah i was really struck by how much of your one hour set was based on your own personal life how do you decide how much of your personal life you want to share with your audience oh that's a great question i feel pretty comfortable sharing a lot of things about my life I'm not, I, and I've been doing this since I was 19, so, like, it is part of my adult life for better and slash or worse, but I really try to make sure that the people in my life that I talk about feel at least that I'm being fair. So I was running down this whole story for a friend, and I told her the last thing that I learned from the doctors, which is that uh, they don't know what causes this, but sometimes it's concurrent with a serious migraine, so they think it might be related. And my friend was like, that's interesting, Josh, because I was just reading a long magazine article about global transient amnesia. And what I read is that it can also be brought on concurrently with a powerful orgasm. (laughs) My mom doesn't love when I tell that story. (laughs) 
despite the incredibly flattering light it paints her in. My dad has no recollection I've ever said this to anyone, so that's fine. We're fine. But the one thing that I did, I've done on TV that <laughs> is um, that there's a bone of contention is my dad insists that he's never worn suspenders with sweatpants, which I've said in a joke <laughs> that he has. And he it's like kind of it's he's not mad about it, but it's a lingering like he'll still bring it up. <laughs> like you know, I've never actually worn the suspenders with the sweatpants. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you had a chance to have lunch with your ninety seven year old great aunt a while back, and you yeah. mentioned that she had a lot of swagger and hubris. Do you, do yeah. you think you've inherited any of her swagger? And I hubris? hope so. I really, I think my my aunt sis passed away, and she had just such an amazing life, and was like writing books and really engaged, seeing family and until the very last days of, of her life. The hubris comes out in different ways. We were out at lunch. We finished the meal, the waiter comes over. He says, can I interest you in dessert? I have one dessert special to offer. It's a slice of pumpkin pie. And my great aunt looks him right in the eyes, grown man, and says, we'll have some grapes for the table. <laughs> And the waiter says, grapes? And she goes, for the table. And the waiter walks out of the room, presumably to quit, is what I thought was happening. She's like, oh boy, better go back to law school, like my dad keeps saying. Comes back two minutes later with three giant bowls of grapes for the table. I just am so glad to share her kind of spirit through this joke with the people that watch the special, because she was really... Uh, a wonderful, special person. Mm, yeah, that's great. Near the end of your special, you share this very beautiful, very poignant, and funny story about how you knew you wanted to be with your wife, Maris, forever. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? I've told this story a few times before, but this is one of them that I'm one of the bits that I'm like, man, I really love this, and I'm so glad I can do it in this visual way that hopefully will reach more people because it's one of my favorite stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And it's just about it, it was the day of my grandmother's funeral. And on the way into the city, we heard the song Caress Me Down by Sublime, which I think is kind of a goofy song. It is a song that is like too sexually explicit. Like it's phenomenal that it gets played on the radio. I think part of it is that some of the very sexual stuff is in Spanish and the people in Boston are like, ah, none of us know what that means, guy. Um, <laughs> so she's singing. I'm laughing so hard. She keeps going, right? She's just singing the whole song. She's like, kiss me neck and tickle me fancy. Tickle me fancy. What are you, a horny pirate? You gotta walk the plank on out of this car. I have to reevaluate things. So we get into the city, we have a couple drinks with some old friends. It's just so lovely to have this experience of like lightening the day a little bit with, with some good friends, some old friends, people I hadn't seen in years, but it felt like we'd been together the day before. It was wonderful. So we get in the car to go home after a suitable waiting period. <laughs> we weren't trying to become Massachusetts sober that evening. <laughs> and we turn on the radio and the first song on the radio that we hear is Caress Me Down by Sublime again. <laughs> At that point, I was like, have I angered a wizard? Uh. We get back to my parents' house, and we're in, in bed about to fall asleep, and it's been a really long day. You know, got up for the funeral and spent all afternoon with family, and it was really lovely, but just being kind of on in that way. Like, okay, I'm present with people all day long. Well, it was like, you know, it, it's, and it's emotionally really 
taxing, even though it was very comforting to be around so many people I love. And she, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, said to me very softly, she said, Josh, kiss my neck. And I just said, anything you want, kiss your neck, rub your feet. You've been there for me today and anything I can do for you to reciprocate. Of course I will, without thinking about it. So I lean in to kiss her neck and she kind of turns her head to look at me and goes, and tickle me fancy. And I, it's like truly one of the hardest laughs of my entire life. It was like such a beautiful moment. And just that she, there was like this comfort of like her doing this bit on such an emotionally loaded day and just knowing like that it would be delightful to me. And that she was just so, we were so in tune with that. And she was just such a wonderful, loving, supportive partner all day. And I was just like, oh, this is one of the most special people that I've ever met and I love her so much and I mm. I am just like so grateful for this relationship. Yeah. It's proof that you two crazy kids belong were made for each other. It really felt that way. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and it comes across that way. Thank you for sharing that story. Josh Gondelman, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on People Pleaser. We're looking forward to People Pleaser Part Two. You'll come up with a yeah. title, of I, course. I mean, I'm really excited to do, like, that next. Like, I can't wait to put out another hour, too. Like, I, I really enjoyed the process of, like, putting together the material, shooting it, editing it, coming like, working with an artist on the artwork. It's been, like, it was really exciting. And I'm like, ooh, I hope I get to do another one in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Hopefully within the next year. I know no extra pressure on you. you <laughs> but we look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Josh Gondelman is a comedian and the head writer and an executive producer of Jesus and Merrill on Showtime. His comedy special, People Pleaser, is now streaming. If it pleases you to find out more about Josh, you can do so at wpr.org slash beta. There's some fun Easter eggs throughout where you may see a character just on the edges kind of reappear. And I... I just find that to be a fun experience in reading and something that I had fun incorporating. Coming up, Chelsea Beaker joins us to talk about her powerful short story collection, Heartbroken. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Chelsea Beaker's debut short story collection features desperate characters struggling to find meaning in their lives. The book is called Heartbroke for a reason. Many of the stories focus on the relationships between mothers and their children. And despite dealing with dark topics like poverty and substance abuse, Chelsea creates sincere human moments of humor and grace. Her previous book is the novel Godshot. It was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award and also named an NPR Best Book of the Year. Godshot and all of the stories in Heartbroke have one thing in common. They all take place in Chelsea's native home of the Central Valley of California. As I was writing the book, I was so entrenched and obsessed with California's Central Valley. Um, I think it's a place that we don't often see in in books and in media, or if we do see it, it's sort of in stereotype. And being from there, I was always really transfixed by the landscapes, by just the diversity of experience you could have from one area to the next. And 
I found when I started writing later as an adult, that was the place all of my work wanted to go. Yeah, it really does serve serve very well as almost like a, a character in in the stories and in your novel, and it's just and you write so well, beautifully and evocatively about what what the the landscape is like and everything. It really it makes me want to kind of visit there. So well done. Thank you. Yeah, I've heard from so many people they became really thirsty while reading my books. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, especially that would apply even more so to Godshot than the short yes. stories, I think. Yeah, but yeah, that yeah. I was pretty thirsty too, yeah. The <laughs> opening story in Heartbroke is called Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Minors and it was inspired by your mother's writing. How so? Yeah, my mom had taken a community college class when I was young, and it was a writing class. And one of the prompts was to write something you're the expert on. You know, my dad was a miner, a hydroelectric miner for many years, and she was kind of immersed. We were all immersed in that sort of world, and the world of mining, as I saw it as a child, seemed really unto itself. It seemed to have a its own language. You know, the miners were very close and connected. It's a really dangerous job. And so when it came time for my mom to write this paper, she wrote about miners and sort of the language that they use and and the nicknames that they have for one another. And when I was an adult going through our storage unit, I found her paper and I think she got like a C minus on it or something. Like she didn't quite follow the prompt, but when I read it, I was so, it was so enjoyable to read because I got to see a side of my mom I didn't know. You know, I was able to see her not just from the perspective of a child, but from a perspective of this unique individual who was actually quite an entertaining writer herself. And the paper just sort of inspired me to remember that time in our lives and remember some of those characters from around that time. And it kind of went from there. So I dedicated it to her because. You know, it's just one of those moments where you're you have a ping of inspiration that you might have otherwise not had from a found object. So yes, yes, yeah. One of the recurring themes in your fiction is when the child takes on the role of a parent, and the way that results in often catastrophic consequences. What is it about this theme that resonates with you? I think that that child perspective, when they are having to negotiate their parents' moods or the parents' behavior, and and that behavior is often really destructive, I find that perspective compelling because that's a really desperate place to be. And a child, of course, doesn't have the full picture, but you also get the sense that neither does the adult. And there's a wisdom in that child's perspective, I think, that is accelerated because of their circumstance. So while they may be very young, They may be, you know, in early adolescence, they are seeing the world in a really heightened way. And I think that always makes for a compelling narrator. They're also seeing their world in terms of safety. They're questioning the things around them because they also see that they will be an adult semi-soon. And there's also an opportunity there to decide, is this the path I'm going to take? You know, my parent is on this one path. I'm observing it. doesn't look great. The glimmer of hope there is that, well, maybe I can choose something different. And I think a lot of the stories do center around this idea of what does it take to interrupt like a generational 
dysfunction? What does it take to interrupt addiction or generations upon generations of domestic violence or, you know, these really hard to interrupt things, even when the narrator sees it clearly or or understands they want a better way, they're often very under-resourced. And so those perspectives are, we're really seeing them at the pinnacle of some big decisions about what path they're going to take and also just the tides of fate kind of being against them and what happens in those more desperate places is always a big curiosity for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me is the way that characters cross over from your novel Godshot to your short stories. So I have to ask, are you constructing your own BCU, Beaker Cinematic Universe? <laughs> I love that. Yes, probably. I mean, these two books were written alongside one another. I think of them as sort of sister books in a way. I guess you could think of them as kind of holding hands because they were written in the same kind of brain space as one another. And and the stories were actually even started before my novel. But as I was writing, especially with Godshot, there were certain storylines that just didn't make it into that final draft. There were certain characters that were extremely compelling to me, but didn't really have a place in the novel after all. And part of the challenge of writing Godshot was narrowing down that story and cutting quite a bit. At one time, it was a lot longer and it didn't need to be, but I was able to take some of that and turn around and maybe write a story that satisfied that need I had to explore these certain characters more. And so there are some overlap. There are some reoccurring places. There's some winks. I would describe it as like a wink to a reader of Godshot if they've read the book. They don't need to read the novel in order to understand the stories and vice versa. They're definitely standalone, but there's some fun Easter eggs throughout where you may see a character just on the edges kind of reappear. And I... I just find that to be a fun experience in reading and something that I had fun incorporating as I wrote the books together. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to read that way because, I, like you, you started by writing the short stories before you started writing the novel. And then I started, I'd read most of the short story collection and then I dipped into the, the novel. And then, the, so I had kind of a similar experience from a reader's viewpoint. And I especially loved when one of the Easter eggs is a protagonist of Godshot, Lacey May, reads a romance novel called Cowboys and Angels, one of the short stories in Heartbroke. <laughs> yes. Yes. At the time, the story collection was called Cowboys and Angels. So oh. <laughs> that kind of changed later in the game. But yes, it was sort of a play on on her kind of having that book in her hands. And I thought that was kind of fun. I had me a cowboy once on a hot steam Friday night on a hot go all the way time, just us together in his truck with old Angel from Montgomery playing way turned up. I wanted that cowboy, but he had eyes for another, some slack-jawed Sally from the next town over, daughter of the dairy man. Me, I'd been out turning grapes as far back as I could remember, but by then I was fixing to marry, and I had long red hair down to my waist, and I was one sunburn away from old age. After our first intimacy, I wanted that cowboy to come to his senses, and I decided he had about a week to do it before I'd tell his future bride all we'd done together, how he'd kiss me each and every place, and we was one before the Lord, and in the eyes of God, we was already married, and she ought to step aside and abide by our blessed salvations evermore. The story is kind of wild. I mean, 
as I was writing it, I was like, oh, interesting. It felt like the voice was out ahead of me and I was just trying to hold on. And Mm. I wrote it all from beginning to end in one sitting, which is very rare for me. Wow. Of Mm. course, I don't worry. I revised it over (laughs) many years. It was not so Mm. simple, but, but it seemed like it came out fully formed. It was like, here, here's the story. And, um, and that was unique. And and so it does remain one of my favorites in the collection because it felt almost like it wasn't even me writing it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it was a fun story to write and it's definitely a fun story to read. Your, your stories have been described as having the quality of a postcard sent by a Quentin Tarantino character if that character grew up in Del Rey reading Flannery O'Connor and Annie Prue. What do you think of that description? Yeah, I thought that was an accurate description. (laughs) Annie Prue especially is one of my favorite writers. And the reason for that is because I think her stories are so grounded in place. Place is so much of a character in Prue's writing. Uh, But also her stories are unique to me in the sense that when you read them, you feel within 20 pages as if you've read a 300-page novel. Like there's Mm. no shying away from that depth and that sort of movement through time and and you feel like you've read this big epic story but it's it's a short story and i was i set out a bit with that in mind as i wrote my own stories because that's just what i love to read and uh, so any comparison to her is a huge honor to me so Mm-hmm. And I guess the Tarantino re- reference is probably a reference to the, the violence that occurs in some of your stories is Tar- Tarantino an influence at all? I can't say that um, he is. I think that more so there's something in me that wants to allow my work to not shy away from the realities of the world. And part of the realities of the world include violence. Mm -hmm. I don't set out thinking, I'm going to write a story that includes violence. I set out thinking, I'm going to write a true story. I'm going to write something where these characters are uh, doing things that is true for them and their scenario and their situation and their resources. And often that culminates in violence. And so my goal with that is never to have violence in my work for violence sake, but to explore it in a way that offers the narrator and the often the victim as much autonomy as possible, uh, but yet not to shy away from the experience that so many people have, have had and um, and to do it well is the challenge. Mm-hmm, definitely. What kind of emotional toll does writing about these characters who are struggling to survive and find meaning in their lives take on you? That's a good question because recently I have felt the book I'm writing now has felt a bit heavier to me in terms of when I'm done writing for that day or just the toll it takes to consider these themes for so long, to, you know, to go to bed thinking about them, to wake up thinking about them. There is a toll, I think. Uh, But overall, I would say writing fiction for me versus like writing an essay or my very brief attempt at thinking perhaps I'd write a memoir that was quickly dashed. Um, I find fiction so much fun. I I find the possibility in it very energizing. So even if I'm writing something that is dark or difficult, there's a real energy in the language for me that, that can help me 
I don't know, end feeling quite uh, rejuvenated, actually. I think it's a way for me also to take control of a narrative, to, to not allow that story or that narrative too much power in the darkness. You know, if I can bring it into this space that I have the ultimate control, I have the ultimate say, and I get to play with the sound and the music of the language and the sentences, that feels really redemptive to me. Mm, very well said. Can you tell us anything about the book you're you're working on now? I can. Um, I think part of the journey of it right now is I'm also figuring out what it is about. Um, I was just talking to another writer friend, and we were talking about how, you know, when we set out to write something, we think we know what it is. We, I set out writing the novel I'm, ri- I'm writing now. I've been working on it for four years, and where I began and what I thought I was going to write about is much different than what the book presented itself to be. And that journey, that exploration of writing and discovery is the magic of writing. Like that's the part that I don't always feel in control of. Um, That's the part where I may have set out in one direction, but now my ship has veered over to this other unexpected thing. And And I think that's a way I know I might be on the right course because then... I know that that's the art of it. That's the art of it is taking over and that's exciting, even though it can be um, a scary place to be in that unknown. It's a, a lot about motherhood. It's a lot about these long standing effects of uh, domestic violence. I'd say it's pretty funny. I think there's a, a humor, and humor is really important to me. I think it humor can be a vehicle to carry some of these heavier topics in a way that people can relate to more and, and that is more fun to write, too, and, and is more realistic. Again, I think things are never one way, so I'm always looking for where's that balance of hilarity and reality. Yeah, look forward to that. Chelsea Beaker, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Heartbroke and on Godshot, and I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate all your wonderful questions. Chelsea Beaker is the author of the short story collection Heartbroke and the novel Godshot. You can find out more about Chelsea and her fiction at wpr.org slash we have to take this huge sweep of chaos and somehow cram it through a funnel and spit it out the other end as a linear sequence of words. Coming up, John Mualim joins us to talk about his one-of-a-kind essays. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. In Gibraltar, there's evidence that Neanderthals extracted the feathers of certain birds, only dark feathers, possibly for aesthetic or ceremonial purposes. And while Neanderthals were once presumed to be crude scavengers, we now know they exploited the different terrains on which they lived. They took down dangerous game, including an extinct species of rhinoceros. Some ate seals and other marine mammals. Some ate shellfish. Some ate chamomile. They had regional cuisines. They used toothpicks. That's John Mualim reading an excerpt from his essay, Neanderthals Were People Too. It's one of 13 essays in John's book, Serious Face, 
He's a longtime writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and has contributed to This American Life and 99% Invisible. If you read only one essay collection this year, you're not reading nearly enough essay collections. Seriously though, I highly recommend you check out Serious Face. It's one of the funniest, smartest, and most perceptive essay collections I've ever read. John has a way of including details that only he could come up with. Whether he's writing about his bullfighting doppelganger or his weekly pandemic conversations with the iconoclastic screenwriter, Charlie Kaufman. John joins us now to talk about Serious Face and the central question that ties all of the essays together. Yeah, that was something that I, I had to put some real thought into as I was assembling the collection. And I don't think as I've gone through the process of scouting out these stories and writing them over the last dozen or so years that I had ever thought of myself as engaged in some kind of big cohesive project. But when I laid these pieces all out and had to think hard about how to introduce them, I thought about um, a line popped into my head from a poem that I'd read about 20 years ago. And the line was just, why are we not better than we are? And suddenly that, that kind of jolted me into thinking, well, you know, I think that is sort of the, maybe not always the question that I was asking as I was going through the process of writing these stories, but definitely the, the question that is underneath a lot of the questions I'm asking. Um, and not just in a moral sense, like why are we not perfect angels who always do the ethically right thing? But also just like, why are we, why can't we get stuff done that we want to get done sometimes? You know, why do, why do projects we embark on sometimes collapse for reasons that seem out of our control? Why are we not, uh, you know, more on it or more efficient or more capable? It just seems like there's a lot of human folly in these stories, inevitable human folly, which I've, I think I've always tried to just kind of accept as part of life and not be too judgmental about. Mm-hmm. Very well said. And yeah, and I think it's that inevitable human folly that permeates these essays that makes the, them so interesting to, to read. We can re- really relate to, to them. H- has writing these essays helped you come up with an answer to the question, why are we not better than we are? I'd like to say yes, and I'd like to, un, you know, uncork some beautiful little aphorism here to settle the question. But no, I don't, I don't think there is an answer. You know, I think if anything, I think looking for an answer has been a huge dead end and distraction for me in some ways like that as my brain's been humming along examining all these you know different people's lives and different situations that it's sort of fruitless to ask why and instead just accepting that there is no answer can kind of give you a greater sympathy and compassion for people who are sort of demonstrating that we're not as good as we imagine we could be Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your essay, This Is My Serious Face. The The story starts when your two friends emailed you an old black and white photo. Can you tell us about the photo? Yeah, these were some friends of mine who were living in Spain at the time, and I get an email from them, and there's no subject line, there's no body to the email, it's just a photograph. And yet I knew why they sent it to me right away. It was a photograph of a photograph they had seen on a wall of a restaurant of a matador, a black and white photograph of this young matador. And I knew why they'd send it to me because it was obvious that this guy looked exactly like me. So, you know, for a while I would just show that picture to to other friends and we'd all laugh about it. And then, you know, years later, it took me years to to actually be curious, well, who was this guy? And uh, I figured out his name was Manolete. He was uh, one of the most famous and renowned as the best bullfighter of his era in the 1940s. And when I bought a, a biography of him, I opened it up, excited to read about my doppelganger. And actually, the first sentence that I read, this is no joke, the first sentence I read said, he has a face that's as dreary as a third-class funeral on a rainy day. 
because apparently um, he was ugly. Everyone thought he was ugly. Everyone could not stop talking about how ugly he was. Everyone was taking cheap shots about his looks. Um, and so I was sort of confronted with the, um, the well, the ugly truth, I guess, about this guy who, <laughs> who looked just like me. Yeah. At one point, he, he's described even as, as remarkably ugly. And if you don't mind my asking, how did that make you feel about your own face, since there is this fairly strong resemblance between the two well, of your faces? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the amusing thing about it. And I think why I ended up writing about it is because it didn't, it didn't really phase me at all. I just was really, um, I was kind of delighted by it. And, in, in, you know, I thought it was hilarious because, I mean, for one thing, I think just saying someone has a sort of blanket ugliness, it feels like a pretty um, old fashioned, uh, you know, narrow minded way of looking at the, the human form. Right. So I, I sort of didn't buy into that to begin with. And then second of all, you know, I like the way I look at I me. Mean, my face is uh, it's pretty crooked, as I, I describe in the piece. It sort of never looks like I'm looking right at you because my chin is jutting out in one way and my nose is going in the other. And, you know, that it took it took definitely not in adolescence, probably not even in my early 20s, but eventually. I made peace with the way I look and I like the way I look. So yeah, to me, it was sort of a, it was amusing to, <laughs> to sit that the situation I'd been thrown in felt, um, you know, almost like a satirical kind of short story or something. And at the same yeah. time, it made me realize kind of how far I had come that I could just weather it so well. Yeah, I like the way you look too. And a lot of uh, readers who read your essay when it appeared in the New York Times magazine recently commented and said that, uh, you know, you're, you're a good looking guy. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I guess it was all a ploy to get um, America to tell me that I'm, I'm handsome. <laughs> yeah, and it seemed to have worked. Uh, what else did you find besides the facial resemblance? Did you find any other things when you did this research into Manolete's uh, life, uh, any other common denominators between the two of you? Yeah, and that's and that's really why I think it wound up turning into kind of more of a profound essay because because the fact that he was ugly, quote unquote, just it becomes a kind of comic setup to everything else I learned about his life, which was that you know he was very ambivalent and conflicted about um, bullfighting, um, not for any twenty first century ethical enlightenment reasons, but just because he was he didn't enjoy it and he felt sort of abused by his audiences. He was uh, you know later in his career they sort of got bored with him because he was just too good, and he thought about uh, he wanted to retire and he planned on retiring. In until he was drawn back in by a very brash, uh, kind of loudmouth, uh, younger matador who who was uh, manufacturing a kind of rivalry with Manolete. And uh, in a way, I identified with that because, uh, you know, I described in the piece, I live with a lot of kind of pain and discomfort because of um, the, basically the way my face is shaped. It's caused, you know, a lot of headaches and sinus problems and all that. And, you know, I think it not it's a, a question of the scale of, of our situations is different. He's fighting bulls and I'm having headaches. But in a sense, there's this question, which I think we can all relate to in any number of ways, which is when you seem destined for something, when you seem like you're you're designed to do a certain thing, and yet um, you feel ambivalent about that thing, and you want to find a way out. Is is the noble thing to do to kind of, you know, accept it and and muscle up to accomplish whatever it is you're supposed to accomplish and what people expect of you, or is or is the braver thing to kind of forge your own path? And I think it's easy to say, oh, we all forge our own paths, but sometimes you know that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to just kind of accept our our fate, and that's a very Zen thing to do. And and the problem I'm grappling with that piece is just how impossible sometimes it is to find that line between acceptance and, and defeat. Mm, yeah. You describe your own face as a conversation piece. If you don't mind me asking, what, what do people say about your face? 
the first question I always get is, when did you break your nose, right? Because my nose is um, kind of, you know, bumpy and, and crooked. And, uh, and to my knowledge, I never did break my nose. So that's, a, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a non-starter. It just kind of, things just kind of grew that way. And then, uh, you know, most, as I've been writing more and more and, um, you know, pictures of me have been on the internet, I've received a lot of um, unsolicited feedback about my <laughs> appearance from the good people of the World Wide Web. Um, one, one guy uh, said uh, my face looked like something Dali would paint, like a smirking camembert melting in the sun, <laughs> which, uh, I, you know, I, I applaud his, uh, his, the literary flourish, at least. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's, you know, it's natural. We're all kind of checking each other out, you know, when you're talking to someone, their face is right in front of you. I don't begrudge anyone um, asking about it. Mm-hmm. Because and as we were discussing a few minutes ago, yeah, you like you like the the way your face looks, and I do, and so do so many others do too. Let's talk about your essay about the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. You actually took kind of a Kaufman esque approach to it, especially with the way you opened the essay with an excerpt from your first draft. Did you experience any pushback from your editor at the New York Times Magazine for wanting to start with uh, um, something that was originally not going to be part of the part of the profile? No, I, uh, to their credit, no. I mean, this was a really peculiar situation in the sense that I was, um, you know, Charlie Kaufman is known as a as a screenwriter, but he was had written a novel that was uh, coming out, and I was uh, going to do a profile of him. I was supposed to uh, go to New York to meet him for the first time on, I believe, like March twelfth, twenty twenty. So um, that was just as COVID was was really starting to shut everything down. And by the time I had turned in a draft of the piece, which was then done just through a series of, of really long and, and uh, meandering phone calls with Charlie over the course of a few months, by the time I turned in that draft, then suddenly George Floyd had been murdered. I think that week I turned it in and uh, the world was erupting in protests and anger. And suddenly, you know, it seemed a little weird maybe to publish a, you know, 8,000 words of two white guys talking about their feelings on the phone uh, in, in a weekly news magazine. Uh, just uh, And uh, the draft was handed back to me <laughs> with basically uh, not very specific, but very adamant feedback, like, what can we do something about this, you know, change it. And I just tried to think about what is the one thing I've learned about this guy through all of our many hours of talking to each other. And I think what I learned about him was just that, like how, you know, almost addicted he is to honesty, that he just can't not be honest about things. And um, that's caused a lot of problems for him, I think, in his career. But it's also kind of his gift and what he brings to all of his all of his scripts. And I just thought, well, what, how can I be honest about what happened? And I, I completely, I mean, it's, it wasn't really a gimmick or anything like that. Just it, it, the, the really the only way I saw through this situation was just to confess that I was in this impossible situation. And I had turned in this other draft and for reasons we all knew and intuited, it was not going to work and, uh, and grapple with that problem in the piece itself rather than try to solve it. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear back from Charlie after the, your essay about him, the profile was published? Yeah, I did. We've, we've stayed in touch a little bit. He had told me in, in advance that he did not plan to read the story. I don't know that he reads a lot of his press or anything like that, and um, I could certainly understand why. Nothing I wrote, uh, you know, helped or harmed our relationship, I guess. Um, and at the same time, it is, it's pretty strange that, you know, we would talk for several hours every Wednesday for probably 
10 weeks, the first 10 weeks of the pandemic. And that was such a bizarre time when everything felt so confusing. And, and I think that was partly why our conversations became so intimate. And then I think when the story was done, it was a little awkward. I felt, you know, like we even talked about, it. we were like, well, we, we probably won't talk too much again, or, you know, we, we may even never meet. It was just sort of a bizarre cliff to drop off at the end. Hmm. Did the fact that you had so much access to him, that you were able to talk to him so many times, and the conversations, as you said, were very intimate. Did you feel more pressure then when you were writing the profile, the essay about how to write it and what you could and couldn't say about Kaufman? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it, I mean, I often have this feeling, I, I really always have this feeling when I'm doing any kind of reporting that, you know, you're thrown into these situations. And in this case, it was just a series of bizarrely intimate phone calls but it could have been you know it could have been the basis for any of the stories in this book and you've just taken in reality you've just taken in this huge dose of another reality and it always feels overwhelming to kind of distill that into prose we have to take this huge sweep of chaos and somehow cram it through a funnel and spit it out the other end as a linear sequence of words and uh that's insane i mean it's just like an insane mm-hmm. thing to try to do so i definitely felt it with charlie but it's it's not an unfamiliar feeling at all it's it's something i feel all the time mm-hmm. what do you want your readers to take away from your essays i'm not sure i know how to explain it so well except to say that well, I don't know, maybe it's my narcissism or something. I can only I can only start with with what I take out of them and and hope that is also transmitted. But like for me, the experience of doing this kind of narrative journalism for so long has just been such a great gift and and just changed my. It sent me to all these different places and and introduced me to all these different people and situations and and that's given me this kind of awe about the world. That this conviction, I think, that if you pay close enough attention to anything, you know, it's fascinating and and often literally life affirming in the sense that like it reminds you about the volume and the richness of life on on earth. And, uh, you know, that's the way I feel, you know, on my on my best days that carries over into my non writing life too. that feeling of kind of delight and amusement about the world. At a minimum, I would just kind of hope to give a glimpse of that same feeling to people. John Mualam, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Serious Face. It's one of the funniest, smartest, and most perceptive essay collections I've ever read. As Seinfeld's Jay Peterman would say, That is interesting writing! Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. John Mualam is the author of the essay collection, Serious Face. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Josh Gondelman, Chelsea Beaker, and John Muallo. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at wprbeta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our technical director and producer is Steve Gotcher. There's no darling Steve. <laughs> Our executive producer and senior formatting manager is Adam Friedrich. Thanks, big guy. Thanks, boss. Now he's in charge of me at work for some reason. <laughs> and thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. There's no, like, sweet Doug. Sweet <laughs> Doug.